Welcome to the Hiker Trash Podcast. This is a project of Local Exposure Magazine. My name is Ronnie Pettit, and I'm your host. The Hiker Trash Project began with my curiosity about why people through hike the Appalachian Trail, or any long trail. I wondered why they do it, what they gain from it, and how that experience might manifest itself in their life after the trail. I spent an entire year following, photographing, and interviewing through hikers on the Appalachian Trail from Georgia to Maine and all the way back to Georgia. I put all that, those interviews and photographs, into a 200-page coffee table book. And now we're going to continue the project as a podcast. So listen along as we track down some of the people we met along the way and interview new hikers and find out, did that experience change them or... Did it simply provide the context to reveal who they already are? You can find out more about Local Exposure Magazine on the internet at localexposuremagazine.com. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at local.exposure.magazine. The intro music for today's episode was provided by Scott Lowe. He's a Northeast Georgia-based singer-songwriter. You can find him on Instagram at Songs. Hey, on today's episode, we have a very special guest. Me. I'm the guest. I'm very special. (laughs) So today, I'm going to tell you a story. And this story is in the book, but I know not everyone has the book. So I want to recount it here verbally. And it'll probably be different than it is in the book anyway, because I don't have a script. I'm just going to tell you the story. This is about my first experience in the wilderness alone. And it's my first time encountering and meeting Appalachian Trail through hikers. This all happened in, let's see, the spring of 1982. It's like almost 42 years ago. Can you believe that crap? Am I that old? I'm so old. My birth certificate is carved in stone. I'm so old. When I was born, dirt was new. I'm so old. When I was a kid, I had a dinosaur. I'm so old that I was a dishwasher at the Last Supper. I'm so old, I have nude photos of Adam and Eve. That's how old I am. I can barely even tell a story, but here we go. You know, I grew up doing outdoorsy wilderness things. My father did, my grandfather did, and and most of the things we did were, were centered around hunting and fishing. We didn't go camping just for the fun of it. It was to facilitate hunting or fishing, even backpacking. I went backpacking when I was like 10 years old, but it was to go trout fishing. It wasn't until high school that two of my teachers kind of sponsored a group of us students who started a, a club. It was a, We called it an ecology club, but it really wasn't. It was just a camping club. These two teachers, Rick Brown, Frank Godfrey, they taught outdoor education. I don't think I ever had a good day of school in my life, but uh, I really enjoyed that class. 
that was the first time I got to experience going camping just for fun. And so we gathered our gear. We had, you know, we had to have a backpack and a sleeping bag. And, um, you know, most everybody had their own little stove and our boots and our wool socks and all this stuff and pocket knives. And, and it was just, it was so cool and fun to have my own gear, my own stuff. After I graduated from high school, a buddy of mine and I decided we were going to go spend spring break on the Appalachia Trail. We were going to go on a backpacking trip. And we had all this gear. And I didn't realize it at the time. This was like something that has come to me in, in the years since. You know, before, before that, before I had my own gear, I would go camping with family and they had the stove, they had the tent, they had the gear, the cooler, the pots and pans and all this stuff. This was the first time that I really had my own gear. It was like a little whisper of a notion of freedom. It was the beginnings of the realization that I could go out on my own. I could go have an adventure. Just like these books I read as a child where the kid runs away and go lives in a hollow tree and makes friends with the animals or the kid who, you know, had a Alaskan Malamute and traveled across the Yukon or whatever. So just having the ability to go all out on my own was a big deal, man. It felt like, uh, you know, like, uh, I, I, this is how I become a man. I don't know. The other thing is, you know, in today's world with all the ultralight gear, you know, you hear the old timers like, well, in my day we carried 60, 70 pounds and all this stuff, and it was always uphill. And, and that's true. But listen, if we had access to lightweight gear, we would have used lightweight gear. It just was not an option. So on the one hand, it's like, hey, even back in the day when people carried more weight and had heavy gear, they still hiked the Appalachian Trail in about six months. Same as today. Some people do it four and a half. Some people do it in seven. The average is probably six. So, you know, whatever on that debate. But rest assured, if I could have had a lighter stove, I would have gotten it. But this was the best that we could get our hands on. It's what we had access to. And most of it came from a local little outfitter or like a Kmart, you know, store, discount store or whatever. But the fact that we even had it was inspiring. It wasn't like, hey, I've got this three-man tent and it, man, it weighs eight pounds. No, it was like, hey, my tent only weighs eight pounds. Uh, it was so awesome. But as a young, you know, just barely 18 years old, it sparked a passion for adventure and the desire to go out in nature and not just live to tell about it, not just survive or get through it, but to be able to go out and be a part of it, be accepted as the same as nature to be in nature as nature. You know, we planned and plotted this, you know, big adventure, and it was kind of a big deal to the our circle of friends and family because we didn't know anybody had ever done, you know, something like this. But 
A few weeks before we were to set out on this adventure, my friend backed out. He couldn't go. You know, the thought was, well, I guess that means I can't go because, you know, you don't go out into the woods alone. You don't, you know, you have to have a buddy system, right? So I decided, screw it, I'm going anyway. I'm not going to back out. I've already spent all this time gathering gear, spending all my hard-earned money from McDonald's, little little teenager jobs that I had, and I decided I'm I'm going. I don't care. I'll go by myself. That sparked a lot of concern and family and friends and whatnot. So my buddy that that had backed out said, hey, if you're going to go by yourself, you know, take my gun with you. He had a gun. He had a little uh, 380 pistol, like silver, like chrome with pearl handles on it, a little small size of your hand, like a pistol that some spy lady would pull out of her purse at a cocktail party, shoot a bad guy. And I, I, I was like, man, I don't, I don't need that. I don't have any, I, I do not believe I have any use to carry a pistol. And it's also kind of heavy. But I agreed. I said, okay, if that'll make, you know, all these people in my world feel better, you know, just tell them, hey, I got a gun. So don't worry. We'll be fine. So I did. I carried it. I put it in the front pocket of my backpack. Had an external frame North Face backpack. As time grew near for us to go, my grandfather was even involved. He said he wanted to drive me up to Springer Mountain. And he had grown up in that area uh, and and had a cabin not far from there that I actually helped him build. Uh, So he invited me to go stay at that cabin with him. And then the next morning he would drive me up to Springer Mountain. So my friend, my buddy went, my girlfriend went. We did. We stayed there. We drove to the Springer Mountain parking lot, which is actually one mile north of the terminus. So you have to park there, hike up to Springer Mountain, then hike back down and continue north if you're going northbound. And so I remember he, as he walked up to the summit with me, I thought, man, he's too old for this. And honestly, I don't remember how old he was at that time, but probably not much older than I am now. But he spoke about Springer Mountain and said that he hunted on Springer Mountain when he was a child, even before the Appalachian Trail was there. And he described the landscape. And he said that every probably fourth or fifth tree was a massive chestnut tree. And the landscape looked completely different. And there were squirrels everywhere. It was really cool to listen to that perspective because I had no, I I didn't know that and I had no idea. And it was interesting to have an old timer reminisce about the mountain and nature in such a uh, loving way. Because the way I grew up and the way my father and grandfather grew up were that conservation was essentially to improve the harvest when it comes to hunting or fishing. Uh, We didn't spend time in the woods just for the love of nature. It was for some purpose. So to hear him talk about it that way was, was interesting. So on the way up to the summit, we met two guys coming down. They were scruffy, man. They were sketchy looking dudes, long blonde hair, big old packs. And they said 
they mumbled and laughed and said something to each other that that seemed kind of uh I don't know off color as they went by and, and they hiked on down and that was my her first hint is like well that was I hope you know that kind of people aren't really what I'm going to be running into out here I didn't know we get to the summit we say yeah that's cool it's awesome get back down to the parking lot they leave and I'm on my way all by myself there I go off on my own and the first few miles of the Appalachian Trail are pretty much a, a downhill easy stroll and uh, so I'm just walking along like Winnie the Pooh skipping through the woods and my gear I don't I don't remember feeling the weight of that pack I know it was heavy my pack was heavy my sleeping bag was probably six pounds my tent was at least eight pounds uh my boots were about three pounds each I had about seven days worth of food that was probably, oh man, it had to be 15 pounds at least. I had a heavy Coleman backpacking stove that wasn't, I mean, it, it, back then it was a backpacking stove. Today you wouldn't even consider carrying it as backpacking. It's basically, it's like an old Peak One uh, camp stove that, Basically, if you took an old-school lantern and cut the top off of it and you kept the metal heavy base, that's the tank for the white gas, and, and then the burner on top of that and added another bottle of fuel, uh, you know, that was my stove. But it didn't matter because even it was heavy and clunky and it flared up, that was another part of that ability to go be out in the wilderness and Take care of yourself. Thrive. Live. Experience. It was, ah, man. I, I think this was, a, this was a, a major shift in the outdoor experience from my childhood to my adulthood. And I didn't realize it at the time. Now I look back at it as this was a very transformative adventure for me. So I hiked that first day, and the the landscape in late March, early April in southern Appalachia is not spring-like. You know, people think, well, it, it is spring already, but not in the mountains, not in the elevation. It's still winter. There's no leaves on the trees. The ridges and mountains are just covered with the brown leaves. It looks like a big teddy bear. The uh, trees, the bark on the trees is just gray like the fur of a deer. And then scattered about are thickets of rhododendron and mountain laurel with their dark green and waxy looking leaves and places where water just comes out of the cracks in the earth and lined with rocks with green moss on them. And I really learned to appreciate and enjoy the winters in the mountains because you could see the the earth. You could see the shape of the earth in those old mountains and I really I really preferred that to the um to the summers. So that first day I hiked oh I think uh to the Hawk Mountain Shelter. It was uh probably about eight miles. 
which that was a good day. I didn't get started that early. So, uh, you know, that's a full day of hiking for, you know, teenage boy with a, a heavy load. So I got to the Hawk Mountain Shelter and I was the only one there. I hadn't seen anybody all day except for those two guys on the summit of Springer Mountain. I got to the shelter and it was empty and I was like, man, this is so cool. I'm just out here. I'm just out here. I got all the, everything I need, I have. I sat down in the shelter and, you know, it was probably an hour before dark and I pulled out my camp stove and just pumped the air into it and lit it and sat there on the edge of the shelter and made some ramen noodles. And as I cooked, I, I had built a little bit of the ramen, those noodles on the, on the deck. And <laughs> as I sat there, a mouse ran out and grabbed it and ran back. And I was like, whoa, wait, what's that? A mouse? Oh, there's a mouse here? Hmm, interesting. So I went ahead and put my sleeping bag out, my sleeping pad, and leaned my pack against the wall of the shelter and hung my heavy food bag up on a nail and and just kind of hung out and reveled in the just being out there and my thoughts. And as the, as the, Darkness began to come, and the and the <laughs> and the light faded from the landscape, and everything just slowly turned more and more gray until the next thing I knew it was it was almost dark, and that's when I had the realization that, hey, this is all fun and stuff, but now it's getting dark, and I am in the middle of nowhere, in the woods, and I'm alone. I realized that, hey, I've, out of all the things I've done in the wilderness and in the woods, I've never spent the night alone. I got a little scared, a little afraid. I was like, whoa, this is new. But I thought, well, it's going to be okay, right? So as darkness came, I got in my sleeping bag, and and it was was fairly chilly, but probably not cold enough to, like, go full-on mummy. But I went ahead and zipped my, my sleeping bag all the way up and pulled the hood around my face because of the mice. And I slid... I slid uh, a little bit towards the opening. It was just a three-sided shelter open on one side and uh, so that there was a little bit of room between my head and the back wall so the mice could run through there without having to, like, walk over my face. So I, I fell asleep. I was tired. Fell asleep, and uh, at some point in the middle of the night, I don't, I don't know what time it was, but I heard crunch, crunch, crunch. Crunch, crunch, crunch. Something in the leaves. It startled me awake, but I could still hear it crunch, crunch. I could tell it was getting closer because it was getting louder. Crunch, crunch. It was just a slow, methodical crunching. And in my mind, I could imagine left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. I was like, oh, my God, what 
So I scrambled for my pack and I pulled out a flashlight. I didn't have a headlamp, just an old school flashlight. Turned my flashlight on and I could see, you know, out into the flat. I saw some eyes crunch, 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 crunch. And it's getting closer and closer and louder and louder. And I looked at it and I thought, oh my God, what is coming to me? It's not afraid of my flashlight. And I could tell the eyes were like close to the ground. So I'm like, okay, well, that's, I don't think that's a bear. I don't think it's a person. It's not a, like a Bigfoot or a panther. What is that? It's just coming and it's waddling. Crunch, crunch, crunch. Straight line. Didn't turn straight towards me. And as it got, you know, maybe 20 feet away, I could tell. It was black and white. It was huge. It was a skunk. It was the size of a rugby ball. It was so fat, it couldn't even walk straight. I mean, it just waddled left and right, you know, left side, right side, crunch, crunch. And I thought, oh, my God, what, 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 what do you do when a skunk's coming after you? I knew that skunks could carry rabies, so I thought, something's wrong here because he's not running away. I'm shining my light at it, and I'm like, you know, starting to talk to it as it got closer. It came all the way to the edge of the shelter. I grabbed that pistol out of the backpack. I was like, well, I mean, you don't, I can't, do you, you don't shoot skunks, do you? And, and, and what if I did and it didn't kill it? It would spray me. I can't really kick it. What do you do? How do you get rid of a skunk? It's like the worst case scenario of shooing an animal away. It came right to the edge of the shelter. And the deck of the shelter was only, I don't know, maybe 18 inches off the ground, maybe less. He put his front paws up on the, on the deck of the shelter right beside my feet. We just looked at each other, and I just kind of, you know, air kicked in my feet in my sleeping bag. I was still in my sleeping bag and like, shoo, get away, go, get away. I didn't know what to do. I I didn't want to hurt it. And I also didn't want to make it mad. I, I was like, well, I don't have any idea what I'm supposed to do right now. And I just made some noise and cussed at it. And so it turned around and started walking away. Crunch, crunch, crunch. The exact reverse of how it came. Straight line out into the darkness. And so it got to the point where I could barely see it because his eyes are facing, you know, the opposite direction. So I'm just looking at the the fur and the tail. And he gets out there, and I was like, okay, he's gone. Turn the light off. I lay back down. And I was, I was, uh, I was a bit shaken, I guess. Uh, I mean, actual danger? Mm, no, probably not. But still, you know. This wild animal is coming right up to me and has no fear, and this is a new experience. So about the time I got settled in, sleeping bag zipped back up, gun back in the pack, I kept the flashlight in my sleeping bag. Crunch, 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 crunch. I was like, holy crap, it's another one or something else. I get my light up, sit up again. The skunk's coming back. 
same routine, slow, methodical, crunching beeline straight for the shelter. He came all the way back to the shelter. This time he didn't put his feet up on the deck. He just stood right in front at my feet. And we had a conversation and he slowly, methodically turned around, crunch, crunch, walked his way back out into the darkness. This happened three times. So after the third time, I was, I was, uh, I was afraid to go back to sleep. I knew that I couldn't sleep, you know, anyway. So I got up. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to build a fire and I'm going to wait for daylight. That's the only thing I can do. You know, the fire scares away the panthers and the tigers and whatever. And I looked at my watch. It was like 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> so I made a little fire. There was no moon. It was dark, dark, dark. So I made a fire and, and just huddled around the fire and waited for enough light so I could see the trail. Uh, and finally, you know, daylight came. I put the fire out. I gathered my gear, and off I was down the trail. And as I walked down the trail, I thought, man, what is next? What? else does this little adventure have in store for me but i was also the fear was gone and i was back to the curiosity of what might be next and i was excited i loved walking through the woods i loved looking at the landscape uh, i still just reveled in the fact that everything i needed was on my back other than the skunk the night before, I had no worries. But <laughs> the next couple of nights, I slept in the tent. It's interesting the amount of comfort a very, very thin piece of nylon can bring. I mean, I could still hear things out, critters out in the woods at night while I was in my tent, but I felt so much safer just being inside the tent. I don't know. I don't know why that is. It's like something could still come get me if it wanted to, but I can't see it. And that tent fabric was some, some source of refuge. One of those nights I camped at a place called Chattahoochee Gap. There's a little road bed that goes right through there. And, and, a flat spot to camp and I camped there and I thought it was so cool because down the hill from there was Chattahoochee Spring and that's kind of the designated source point for the Chattahoochee River which I you know that's the major river through the region uh, I'd lived in North Georgia and fished in the river I lived in South Georgia and fished in the Chattahoochee River and it was so cool to me to be able to camp right there and then go get my water where the Chattahoochee River comes out of the ground. It was so cool. And, and I remember there, right there at the spring, were some little yellow flowers starting to bloom. And I just thought it was so cool. So as the days go by, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm just, I love every minute of it. You know, I walk during the day and I marvel at nature. I find a place to camp and I, you know, make camp and make food and 
you know, change into some dry socks and and just kind of living out the fantasies of my childhood. And so I think it was the, I don't know, probably the third day, but, you know, to make it to Blood Mountain. And so I stayed in the Blood Mountain shelter. And that's where I saw, again, those two hikers I saw the very first day. And so we started talking and met each other. They were, uh, they were construction workers from Virginia Beach. One of, them's, one of them had the trail name. And this is the first time I heard about trail names also. But one of them had the trail name of Wrong Way because he had you know, gotten off trail, got back on, hiked in the wrong direction for like half a day. And the other guy, I can't remember his name. Oh, we'll just call him Tool Belt. Well, he was a construction guy. But they were rough looking, man. They would look like what in that day I would call a hippie. You know, long hair, long blonde hair. Just looked and behaved rough around the edges. But they told me about their, you know, they're going to through hike the, the whole trail. And I was really amazed that they that you could even do this or that people were doing it. And so Blood Mountain is just like, what, one mile, two miles from Neil Gap. They said they had rented a cabin near there, and they invited me to stay the next night with them in this cabin. And I thought, hmm. Hmm. Well, it would be nice to, like, spend the night indoors and be warm, but also these guys are, you know, I don't know these guys from Adam and Eve, but I said yes. So when we got down to uh, Neil Gap, and there's that store there, Mountain Crossings is called now, um, there's a payphone there, and I got on the payphone and called my mom, because the only arrangements that I had made were, hey, in seven days, next Sunday or whatever, pick me up at Unicoi Gap. That's that's the only tie or instructions out there. You know, if I had ran into trouble or problems or got hurt, I would have to just figure it out on my own. But because there was a payphone there, I called and said, hey, I think I'm going to be about a day ahead of schedule. I was making better time than I had you know, anticipated. So I said, pick me up on Saturday instead of Sunday. And they said, okay, hung up the phone. And so the cabins that this guy, these guys rented are just like, I don't know, a tenth of a mile, a quarter of a mile you know, from the gap. So we walked down to this cabin, which is a very nice cabin, and just hung out and talked. You know, this was a new experience for me to, A, be around this type of, these types of guys. They were, like I said, very rough around the edges. They talked about doing drugs and, you know, other things that are probably questionable. And they said, uh, they said, to, you know, talking about girls and they said, they used the uh, phrase F-E, said, oh yeah, definitely that's F-E. And I said, what does that mean? What is F-E? What is that E? And they said, oh, forced entry. And I just froze. And I remembered that first day coming when, as they came down Springer Mountain as we were going up. 
That's what they said when they passed my girlfriend. F.E. Definitely F.E. And so I thought, oh, my God. This this might not be a good situation right here. But I theorized, you know, hey, I got the gun. They don't know I have the gun. I'll freaking shoot them if I have to. And so we just hung out and talked. I gave them my address. You know, that's there's no contact information back then. There's no cell phone. And there's no uh, other way to get in touch with somebody. So I gave them my address, and they said they would send me a postcard, you know, up the trail somewhere. And uh, one of them gave me one of those uh, sunglass holders, a croaky, you know, croaky sunglass holders. I kept that and used it for years. That and it, so it turns out they were very uh, nice and helpful to me, even though they were no doubt sketch balls. And here I am, just barely eighteen. I look like I'm fourteen, you know, hanging out with these dudes. So we spent the night. Next morning. Went off down the trail and kind of went our separate ways. And I was, I was uh, relieved. I was relieved to be back on my own. It was good to be around some other people, but I still didn't trust them. And so I wanted to be away from them. And so I spent the next few days, you know, again on my own, sleeping in the tent, not the shelters. I learned my lesson uh, that first night about the shelters. Near the end of my trip, I ran into them again at the uh, Blue Mountain Shelter, which is about one mile from Unicoi Gap. When I met them there at that shelter, I ran into them, and we hiked down to the Gap together. As we stood there in Unicoi Gap, I told them, I was like, well, this is where my, my adventure ends. I've got somebody coming to pick me up. And they worked really, really hard to try to talk me into continuing on. I said, well, because my my original plan was to be picked up on Sunday, not Saturday. And they said, come on, go another day and then just come back. You know, just hike on, go see Trey Mountain and and then come back, you know, tomorrow. And I explained that I'd already made the phone call. There's no other way to get in touch um, with anyone to change the plans at this point. But I stood there looking up up that, that climb from Unicoi Gap up towards Trey Mountain, I just thought, man, my curiosity, my wonder, like what's down the trail or what's up the trail, what, what, what's next? And I stood there and I really wrestled with that idea of like, I want to keep going. I want to see what's over the next ridge and the next one and the next one. But I didn't. I couldn't. So we said our goodbyes. Funny story is three months later, I got a postcard from these guys. They mailed me a postcard, and they explained that they uh, they had to get off the trail. They didn't make it. Somewhere in Virginia, they bailed. But it was so cool and interesting to have met someone that was going, that is even trying to hike from Georgia to Maine, and also the fact that they took the time to send me a postcard. And so I wondered, I've kind of explained the impression they've had, they had on me, but I wondered, you know, what was their impression of me for them to, you know, follow through with sending me a postcard. So I watched them, you know, walk up the hill, up that climb from Unicoi Gap, and I stood there, you know, in that parking area. 
my stepdad's truck wasn't there and, and there was no set time. It was just pick me up on Saturday. You know, that's about as, as specific as w- we can make it. And being the restless individual I was, I decided to just start walking down the road. And probably about halfway from Unicoi down to Helen, down that curvy road, I saw the truck coming and they pulled, turned around and pulled over, threw my pack in the back. And it was a 80s Ford diesel truck with uh, like an extra cab. It was like the first generation of extra cab. So there wasn't like a, a, a back door. It was, but there was just a little extra space behind the seat, driver's seat, with like a little flip down, little bench seat, a little tiny area. So I crawled in and into that little space, and you know, we drove back towards Kennesaw, Georgia, the windows mostly up, you know, breathing the cigarette smoke and just staring out the window. And they like, How was your trip? How was it? And like, well, it was fine. It was fun. That was the first time I think I had tangibly experienced that idea that through hikers experience when they get back home and don't know how to convey that experience to others. And they know that there's no way that other people can understand what just happened what I've been through or what I've learned, or I don't even know what I've learned. I just know that something's different than it was before. And I like it. So went home and back to school. And honestly, I never even told anybody this story. I mean, there's probably more to it that I've left out, but there's, I've never, I never, it's not like you go home and say, hey, everybody gather around. Let me tell you about what happened and all this cool stuff and how scary I, how scared I was and these sketchy boys. And it just doesn't happen that way. Even if it did, I didn't want to compete for airspace to try to force or convince people to listen to my, experience i will say this to other people to you hiker trash people because you understand man i think the maybe the greatest gift you can give a young person is to give them the opportunity and equip them with the supplies gear and knowledge to go off and have their own adventure to allow them to experience nature, mankind, and themselves separate from the culture and beliefs and routines of their daily life. It would be 10 years, almost exactly 10 years later, I would set out on the Appalachian Trail with Mr. Wendell. And if I had not had that little solo adventure in 1982, I don't know if I would have had that seed planted in my head that it was even a thing that was attainable or an option or an out. Like somewhere in my psyche, there's this rock bottom 
and somewhere above the rock bottom is always the idea that no matter what happens, I can carry everything I need and I can do more than just survive. And I can get on that trail and I could walk to a whole nother world if I have to. If it comes down to that, I know I can do that. And I think that's been a, uh, hmm, I guess that's kind of been a theme for my life is uh, when everything goes wrong and everything gets stripped away and whether it's my choice or out of my control, there's always this baseline of, hey, I know I can survive in the woods. I know I can carry my gear. I know I can walk across this country. And I know I can stay alive if I want to. I think that's a humbling empowerment. It's not something that I or others that have that same internal thought would boast about. It's a quiet confidence that uh, I can be okay. I can be okay. So that's my story. And I'll tell other stories as uh, this podcast continues on. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to go back and listen to the other episodes. This is episode number six. Go back and listen to them if you like them. Tell someone. Share. Make a post about it. Um, Talk about it. And let's keep it going. We'll keep it going as long as um, you're listening. Thanks for joining us today on the Hiker Trash Podcast. If you'd like to support this project, you can go buy a coffee table book or a fine art print. You can do it at our website, localexposuremagazine.com. You can show some love to Scott Lowe. He provided the music for today's episode. You can find him on Instagram at Scott Lowe Songs. Hey, if you enjoy this, tell someone. Send them a text, make a post, talk about it. And stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you. Thank you.